This is how we overcome the movement now. Here we come. Reaching to the world. Arms open, arms open, yeah. This is how we practice. Well, welcome back to Crazy Face Talk. This is Erica. This is Steve. <laughs> and this is Sarah. And we are here in the middle of a series. Uh, we are playfully calling Epiphany Tide Getting to Know Jesus Again. We've talked about the ins and outs of the, the season from uh, the perspective of people who keep the church year and celebrate a season called Epiphany. And last time we sort of took a turn to look a little cl- more closely into how the Gospels introduce us to Jesus. Last time we talked about how the biblical gospel writers talk about Jesus being baptized. How will we get to know Jesus today, Sarah? So today we're talking about what happens immediately after Jesus is baptized. This story appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, and it is the temptation of Jesus. So Jesus has just been baptized. Um, You know, John has in some way dunked Jesus in water or sprinkled some water on his head. And in doing so, the heavens have been torn open. Uh, The Holy Spirit has descended upon Jesus in the bodily form of a dove, and a voice from heaven has proclaimed either to Jesus or to the crowd, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And immediately after that, the Spirit sends Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted. That's a weird left turn, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Maybe we should we should start there for a minute, because to be honest, when when Mark's the one telling the story, he doesn't give a whole lot of details about what happens when Jesus is tempted. He just says it happens. But Mark is probably the clearest of all the gospel writers that it's the same Holy Spirit that just landed on Jesus. That's the one who drives him out into the wilderness. Right. So and to be fair, to be fair, Jesus is already kind of in the wilderness. Right. Like he's gone to see John who lives in the wilderness Mm -hmm. um, to the Jordan River and is baptized in the Jordan. Um, So like. Jesus could have been driven several miles away or just 30 feet. Sure. And like, who knows? Yeah. It's another way of saying he didn't go back into town after this. He continued further on away from the hustle and bustle of the crowd. And and for sure, it's not like he leaves the scene from being baptized with lots of friends wrapping him in his arms, you know, taking pictures and hugs and, oh, what a good job. We're so proud of you, Jesus. Jesus leaves the scene and goes off on his own. And I think it's fair to say, certainly for Mark, I think for Matthew and Luke as well, the connection is important that what, what began at the baptism scene isn't really, the story isn't really done. He's, he, something needs to continue to happen and something continues to get processed in this confrontation in the wilderness. Yes. And and I think for me, one of the things is that this isn't necessarily Jesus's choice Mm -hmm. at this point, that it is the spirit doing the action. Um, You know, the different different gospel writers use different verbs. Some of them is uh, the spirit sent Jesus. Uh, Mark is the spirit drove him out like it's a very forceful verb here. Um, so the spirit is kind of forcing this upon Jesus. And so to me, it's never sounded super voluntary. 
Yeah, and like you don't get the sense that Jesus is kicking and screaming, saying no, no, no. I but so much like this wouldn't have been my choice. But this is where it, it almost. I mean, you sometimes get Jesus saying things like, "This is the way it needs to go." So this is what I'm going to do. But Jesus is re- like whatever our sense of of Jesus' identity or sense of mission, he's able to do difficult things that aren't he knows are not going to be easy and fun. Jesus doesn't just like go skipping through town, going, "I'll pick some flowers because that's fun," and I'll heal a leper. But Jesus has a sense of clarity of here's where I'm being led next, whether I like it or enjoy it or not. This is where where, where the way of God be, leads me to go. Right. I almost wonder whether um, the same word um, that's being used for being driven out into the desert is the same word for like when Jesus will cast out a demon elsewhere. Cause it's the, mm-hmm. the, the word in the Greek in Mark's gospel um, is uh, ekbale, which means thrown out. Like the, the, the spirit threw Jesus out. It's almost identical kind of language to when Jesus will drive out a demon from a possessed person, which is interesting to imagine that strong kind of language that now the spirit's driving Jesus out instead of Jesus driving evil spirits out. But yeah, Mark is, is, um he's rough he's he's rough in his in his language sometimes it 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 always invites me to wonder what this looked like and i know that we talked about in the last episode that that's probably not the important thing that we're supposed to be gathering from this this moment of jesus's temptation but like is this the spirit like just forcing jesus to walk to this location in the wilderness or is it even possibly more supernatural where Jesus like teleported or something? Like uh, it just always invited me to wonder, well, what did this look like? Like, and I don't know if I've just read too many fantasy books in my lifetime, but I always kind of skew more towards this was supernatural. This was Jesus disappearing in a bright light and the spirit, you know, in the form of a dove making him reappear in this non-populated area of the wilderness. Even that question of how do you know you've arrived in the right spot in the wilderness? I mean, like the, the, the temple, you know, another location people go to meet God or encounter God, that's a, a fixed spot. You know, you're in the temple because it's the temple. Even, even Jesus' baptism, you got to go where John and the river are. That's how you know. But how do you know where in the wilderness is the place you're supposed to go? And is it one spot that he camps out for the 40 days? Is he wandering in different places? Um, and maybe that's not terribly important, except that the idea of being in the wilderness for a season, that, that rings some bells in my memory, right? That, that it doesn't seem like this is just a random, here's something to do, but that, that's deliberately meant to echo something. It echoes the wandering in the wilderness of Moses and the people of Israel and the Old right. Testament. You know, it's not Jesus isn't out there for 40 years, but he's out there for 40 days. And I think the gospel writers are, are intentional about making that connection, right? That saying, mm-hmm. okay, Jesus is there for 40 days, not because that's a magic amount of time and it, you reach spiritual enlightenment between day 39 and day 41, um, but that this is meant to be an echo, almost that like in Jesus' own life, he echoes the story of Israel and where ancient Israel is this whole nation of people who go to the wilderness and get clarity about how they will be God's people um, Jesus as one person goes and gets this and, and the wilderness is a time of clarity that it's not strictly a punishment, but it maybe is a, is a point of clarifying um, almost kind of like 
when I talk with colleagues in ministry who go away on retreat, some, you know, from time to time, and that that's different than vacation, like that. Yep. Uh, and I don't know anybody who talks about going on a personal retreat as that's punishment, but it's often a lot simpler. You know, like you don't go, man, I'm going on retreat. There's going to be nothing but cable channels and golf. And like, no, it's meant to be simpler and clarifying. So you might have simple meals and you might have a lot of quiet time in the wilderness or something, but it's not a chance to catch up on movies. It's more, you know, that, that sort of spiritual recentering and it's good for the soul. I don't know anybody who comes back from retreat saying, man, I hated that, but it's, it's, it, there's a certain clarity and it's simplicity. Maybe the wilderness is like that for Jesus, too. So Mark doesn't give us a whole lot more about what happens, just to say he's there in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. Um, but um, the the other gospel writers who tell us this story, Matthew and Luke, they've got a whole lot more conversation and a whole lot more specificity about what happens, right? Yeah, I, I love reading Mark because Mark just gets straight to the point um, he doesn't spend a whole lot of time on detail. And, uh, you know, for him, the focal point of Jesus is going to be the crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And so that is what Mark is focused on. So everything else, like he's going to tell you because he thinks it's important, but he's not going to spend a lot of time on it. Um, and, uh, the other two, synoptic gospels, the ones that are most similar to Mark, which is Matthew and Luke, they tend to take Mark and expand upon it because Mark wrote so little about things that, you know, I'm sure other Christians at the time were going, well, we need to know more. Um, and so that's where Matthew and Luke come in with giving us that more detail. So yeah, they're going to have a lot more to say about the temptation. And interestingly enough, Matthew and Luke, when they give us more, they both give us the same um, individual episodes, but in different orders. There, so there's, uh, they all start out with uh, Matthew and Luke both have uh, the, the tempter showing up and telling Jesus, if you're the son of God, turn these stones, command these stones uh, to turn into bread, which is sort of a building off of after 40 days, he's very hungry. Um, and then the other two temptations, uh, Matthew and Luke have in different orders. Um, Luke ends his with the, if you're the son of God, jump from the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will catch you. And the middle one is about uh, showing him all the kingdoms of the world and saying, I'll give you all these if you'll bow down. Matthew has those in a different order. Um, again, it's not, it's not so much like we have to get upset about, well, which is the exact order. They each have different maybe reasons for emphasizing what they emphasize. But it's interesting to me that both Matthew and Luke have the same episodes, but in different viewing order. Steve, you accidentally flip-flopped those. It's Matthew's got the pinnacle at the end. And, oh, okay. But again, like you said, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, it's just the idea that they're all three temptations are in there. Yeah. In both accounts. It's just a matter of you know, the order of those temptations, which. Right. And in a sense, okay, so none, maybe, maybe which one they end on isn't, isn't as critical, but it does seem like all three of these temptations are about more than they appear. I mean, it, it's more just about do some tricks for me, Jesus. Um, but I want to, I want to uh, jump back to something you said in our last episode, Sarah, you offered the hypothesis that at least part of what Jesus baptism is about 
is Jesus making the conscious choice in response to God's claim of him, but to, to choose a certain path to say, I'm going to go the, the way that God has laid out for me, living a certain way of life, following and, and living, embodying the reign of God being the Messiah. And that saying yes to that also is going to mean saying no to certain other strategies or ways uh, of going about that. And it, it seems like the, the temptation may be about that to some degree. It's, it's about if you're the, if you're the Messiah, how will you do that? How will you accomplish the goals of being Messiah? And Jesus response is, is clear about what he won't pursue in order to do that. I think one of the things that I've been noticing a lot as I read the Bible these last couple of years is people's expectations of Jesus um, and how those are either the same or different from Jesus's own expectations. Um, and in particular, that expectation that people seem to have a lot about Jesus is what kind of Messiah is he going to be, right? Like lots of people, including his disciples, just can't seem to accept what type of Messiah Jesus is. Like they want him to be that conquering hero. They want him to drive out Rome. They want him to put Herod in his place and uh, bring back the former glory that was Israel. And Jesus keeps having to say, no, that's not, that's not who I am. And I think going back to these three temptations that we see in Luke and in Matthew, it's Jesus very clearly saying, no, that's not what kind of Messiah I am. Like, the, like, I'm not going to take the glory of ruling a kingdom. I'm not going to conquer anybody. Like, that's not, like, it's Jesus saying no to what kind of Messiah he's going to be so that he can say yes to being the Messiah that saves us from sin and death. Yeah. And that, that means that Jesus seems to be ruling out violent conquest as a way of accomplishing, even in the name of doing good. I mean, like that Jesus seems to rule out that kind of thinking of, well, the means that the end justifies the means of, yeah, well, nobody likes to get their hands dirty, but you got to, if you really want to get rid of the Romans, Jesus seems to be ruling out. I, I'm not going to do things that way. I'm not going to create an empire like like the other empires of the world, and I'm not going to just feed people with uh, with free bread as a means of becoming popular. I mean, like, interestingly enough, at other points, Jesus will feed people miraculously. So it's not that somehow making bread is sinful, but more that, like, it's a, I, I refuse to play by uh, by the devil's terms. I'll instead be being the Messiah in this rather different upside down way that means the, the way of the cross. Yeah, I think that the temptation in particular, the one about turning the stone into bread, like to me, that always seemed like the hardest temptation. And I, you know, I could be wrong. Like this might just be my own personal baggage. But like, can you imagine having the ability to turn rocks into bread to feed the hungry? Right. Like how, like to me, like that's, I've always struggled with that. Like, how is that not, part of Jesus's mission because Jesus's right. mission is to lift up the lowly you know to to encourage that feeding of the 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 hungry and it it occurred to me only recently that if Jesus had said yes to being the kind of messiah that would do that miracle to feed hungry it would be letting other people off the hook for doing that ministry for doing mm -hmm. that repentance of 
you know, if we have hungry in our world, that means that we have failed. Mm. And if Jesus was to swoop in and to just fix it, it would mean that we, the people who have failed to make sure that everybody was fed, that the systems aren't like, you know, that the systems shouldn't be broken that allows people to be mm. hungry. Mm-hmm. It would let us off the hook from having to repent and to try to fix those systems. Sure. I've always found that to be very tempting and a very for a very different reason because Jesus has spent 40 days fasting in the wilderness. Right. So I'm, I never thought of it as being able to turn stones, rocks into bread to feed others, but to turn a rock into bread to feed himself. Mm-hmm. In that moment. It, it could it could be one of those where this is a both end because like clearly the gospelers make make the point that Jesus is hungry by this point mm-hmm. and it would be easy and it doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, like, there's that sort of unspoken, come on, it won't hurt anybody, Jesus. Who's gonna who's know? Gonna, yeah, who's gonna know, right? Um, but the very fact that later on Jesus will, you know, miraculously multiply loaves for other people seems to suggest that like, okay, well, clearly that's on the table. That that could have been a thing he could have done and yet chose not to go that route. That mm-hmm. that, that that connection is, is just waiting to be made there too. <laughs> So, so I think that the reason my brain never goes that way is because when I was younger and Charmed was on for the first time, not the reboot, but the original, like I loved that show and they're that whole premise of uh, three sisters who are witches, but they're not supposed to do magic for personal gain. Mm-hmm. And so to me that, 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 uh, th- that looking at that temptation of, oh, Jesus is personally hungry and he wants like the temptation yeah. of personally feeding himself. Like to me, it was always like, oh no, that's personal gain. You can't do that. I like, kind of, I kind of wonder if the there's another connection to be made with the the story of ancient Israel wandering. That we've said that Jesus' temptation kind of echoes ancient Israel, and as Israel remembers its time in the wilderness, they're getting fed every day by God with the manna, day by day by day. And I I often ask people whether it's like kids in confirmation class or adults when we talk about the story. Why does God not just give them a 40-day supply of manna or a 40-year supply of manna at the beginning and they just lug that around? And I think part of it is like that's not the problem. It's it's more than just we need a bunch of food. They need to be transformed into the kind of people who one trust God for their daily bread, but also can share with each other. And then the whole idea is you're not supposed to hoard the manna that you're you know not supposed to take from other people, and that God's agenda is more than just how do I feed empty bellies, but how do I shape these into the kind of people who can trust that I'll give them what they need and that they can share with one another that in the end god's god's vision is not just filling the bellies of jerks and leaving us as jerks but making us into the kind of people who are both fed and capable of feeding each other that i kind of along the lines like you suggested there sarah that that in in a sense maybe maybe what jesus has come to do is not just to feed bellies but to transform the kind of people we are and that's going to require that we learn to be the kind of people who can trust god to provide day by day and to share um so that even jesus teaches his disciples when he gives them models for praying says give us today our daily bread um that there's that you know enough for now and then that we can be people who can share our bread with each other um that that's an interesting thought that that the, the temptation is also about what the kingdom of God looks like or the reign of God looks like and how that transforms us. W- one connection that we kind of hinted at uh, a little bit ago is how the gospel is, especially Mark, is always interested in making a connection to how any episode 
points toward what's going to happen at the cross. And it seems to me that the, the temptation scene, especially uh, in the language that the, the tempter uses, has that feel of pointing toward a moment at the cross too. Because we get again and again, if you're the son of God, do such and such. If you're the son of God, do such and such. Um, and it, I almost can't help but hear the echoes from the crowd at the, the crucifixion story. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. Um, that whole idea get, got explored by um, Nikos Kazantzakis in his famous uh, no- novel of The Last Temptation of Christ that then became the controversial movie, The Last Temptation of Christ, but that imagines what would have happened if Jesus got down off the cross and lived a comfortable life and goes and gets married and has kids and all that kind of thing. Um, and in the end, in that book, spoiler alert, it's all sort of a vision in his mind while still on the cross that he does that and and, and then makes the choice. No, that's not the way I've come to do things. I will see this all the way through, through death and into resurrection. But that idea that really all of this is the devil trying to convince Jesus to choose another path that doesn't involve suffering love as the way of, of God, like, no, do it by conquest, do it by being a celebrity, do it by feeding people uh, without changing them, that kind of thing. And that Jesus says no to all those. We we keep talking about, you know, the Messiah coming and the conquest and things, you know, the, the image that people had of what the Messiah would do. The Messiah would take over Rome, you know, would conquer Caesar, conquer, you know. But when Satan tempts Jesus to give him all, all the kingdoms of the world, mm-hmm. it's not through conquering, right? Right. It's just Satan says to Jesus, if you were just but to bow down and worship me, mm-hmm. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And, and so that just, I, I don't know, that's just kind of a half-formed thought. There, there's got to be something more to that, that I just haven't ever given the time or thought to. Sure, sure. So I, if you have anything to add to that, fine. If not, fine. It's a half-formed thought we're just going to throw out in the space. <laughs> so um uh several several years ago like when I was in like I want to say my first year in ministry I did a bible study on the devil and like the the like not what we think of when we think of the devil because paradise lost has so ingrained itself right. into our like social thoughts about religion but like just looking at where he shows up in the bible and the history a little bit of him and like the the looking at the words used for him and so the the greek here it like the devil it translates into you know the adversary you know the Mm -hmm. stumbling block um and and especially in this temptation stories of Jesus and the devil um it's very much like that's the image that keeps coming back to me is how the adversary is trying to make Jesus stumble and especially with the one of like oh if you just worship me like that that thought of worshiping Mm -hmm. and and I think in in our in our own religious piety worship is something that you do to to God Mm -hmm. like we don't worship anybody else um but that 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 word worship is it's showing 
deference to somebody yeah. who is elevated above you um, to show that they are worthy. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, worship, worthiness. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where that word comes from. And so, especially in the first century, when you worship somebody, you could worship anybody who is at a higher level society than you. Um, so like, if you were a peasant, you would worship your king. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not to say that you would necessarily think of them as a god, but rather that they were worthy of your deference, that yeah. they were higher and elevated than you. And so here in this moment, the adversary, the devil is asking Jesus to place him higher than Jesus. Yeah. And in doing so, I think that is a denial of who Jesus is as the son of God, as one member of the Trinity of God, of Jesus's own divinity. It's to say, no, I'm lower than you and you are higher. So therefore I will worship you and that you are worthy of this. Um, so that, that's always what I think of when in this, in this moment. I think there's also probably a sense of allegiance too to give your to give your worship to um because like you, you if you lived in an ancient world with lots of different competing kings and kingdoms you might recognize that somebody else's king was a king and you're just you know a peasant but you wouldn't give your allegiance or bow down to them they're you know the enemy king you spit on them or you hate them but like to to the 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 greek word for to worship literally comes from to bend your knee to who who will you bend your knee down to and that suggests not only a lowliness of putting the other person above you but also a sense of allegiance i, I almost wonder if in our culture and time the the imagery should be who, what would you put your hand over your heart for you know, like there there are some things that are important enough that yeah i'll swear allegiance and i'll pledge allegiance to this and there are things that you won't um and that like there's some of that sense of to whom or to what will you give your fealty or loyalty or or give your allegiance to? Um, and yeah, as you as you point out, Sarah, that might or may not mean that you think that thing is a god, but practically, whatever it is you're giving your allegiance to functions like your god. Well, and I think this idea if you just bow down and worship me, I will give you this. That's the easy way out. Sure. You know, because Jesus knows that he has come to claim the whole world, to save the whole world. And so he would just to bow down and, and worship Satan. That's the easy way out because Satan's going to give him the whole world without death, without crucifixion, without suffering, without loss. Um, and I think, and, and I know the temptation of Jesus isn't necessarily, you know, Jesus went through it. So can you, right. But the idea, you know, the the conniving side of, of the devil and how he makes things look to be not as bad. You know, this looks really good. Mm -hmm. You know, Oh, I don't have to go to a cross. I don't have to die to get the kingdoms of the world. That looks really good. That looks a whole lot better than what, you know, the father is telling me that I have to do, mm -hmm. but how often is that true of the temptations that we face? Sure. Satan, you know, it, Oh, you just take this shortcut or, you know, share this lie or whatever. It's going to make your life easier. Right. Um, I, I don't know. Again, kind of a half form thought, but that's just. Yeah. One of the things that kind of comes out to me from this particular temptation. Well, and how often 
the what allows us to conspire with rottenness and evil in the world is that sort of the end justifies the means kind of thinking of well, yes i i wouldn't normally do this but this could be used for such a good cause so i'll i'll do it you know that, that that's the same language that that satan offers is you know uh, i wouldn't normally ask you to worship me but i'll give you all the kings of the world okay well for that price you know this seems like a steal um it is it is noteworthy i think that um at every turn, especially in Matthew and Luke, Jesus' response to Satan is grounded in scripture as part of his response. And just to come back around that, uh, the devil is also perfectly capable of quoting scripture as part of a temptation as well. And the, the pinnacle from the temple one, the devil quotes back, after all, the Bible says, you know, uh, the angels will catch you. Um, a reminder to me that like, just doing something because I think I've got a Bible verse that I can use to justify it does not mean <laughs> that it is a wise or godly course of action. And that playing the game of who's got more Bible verses they can stack up, that, that can sometimes be a, a dangerous and bad game to play. And it goes back to that idea that Jesus is choosing this way, choosing yeah. the way that the Father has laid out for him, choosing the way that God has laid out. You know, he chose to be baptized, you know, while the spirit drove him into the wilderness, he agreed to go. He's, he's again, choosing that way of what it means to be the Messiah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think that's the biggest takeaway, at least for me from this temptation is God is, Jesus is choosing the way of God, no matter how hard that way might be. Sure. Sure. And that's got a particular thrust to it. That's, that's, it's, it's, easy just to say when you're dripping wet from the the waters of baptism yep i love god that you know but like to be clear that's going to mean at some point that will be diff that'll mean difficult choices that will mean um that uh you have to make choices that will sometimes be costly for you or where you don't always have a lot of clarity or where everybody's got a bunch of bible verses on their side and you've got to decide okay this isn't about who's got the most number of bible verses what fits with the character of god that that's tricky and and yet that's part of what jesus chooses that difficult work in in our uh tradition at least in our current hymnal our baptismal liturgy has a threefold uh question and answer where you say no to the powers of evil the the, the actual language is um do you renounce the devil and all the forces that defy god and you say i renounce them and do you renounce the powers of this world that rebel against god and everybody goes i renounce them do you renounce the ways of sin that draw you from god i renounce them um not just as an echo of the the three pattern in this story but i always tell families when i'm talking with them before they're baptized or with uh, confirmation age kids before they go through affirming their baptism that like this is the easiest it will ever be put to you. Most of the time, the presence of evil doesn't show up, you know, wearing a, a you know red uh, horns and carrying a pitchfork and saying, "Hi, I'm trying to get you to do evil." Most of the time, it's subtle, or it's got a list of Bible verses convincing you why it's right, or you know, dresses in respectability and offers you power or comfort or things like that. So yeah, take an easy, slow pitch over the plate when you can. You know, will I renounce evil when it's obvious? Yeah, because the hard work is doing what Jesus does from here on out, which is. To to live the, the, the God way of life uh, and to embody the reign of God in the messiness of the real world.
What we're going to do in these coming remaining episodes is take a look at a couple other ways that the gospel writers help us to get to know Jesus once he's out of the wilderness, that maybe there's clarity here because there's no other distractions in the wilderness. But from here, Jesus is going to show us uh, how he introduces himself and maybe we can get to know him in the first words that he chooses publicly, in the first moments, in the people that he surrounds himself with. And those are also going to help us to get to know Jesus all over again. So if you're wanting to be a part of that adventure, come along and join us next time here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Instacart shoppers know groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock-hard avocados. They know how to quickly find those peanut butter pretzels you can never find. And they keep you in the know by giving you updates about your order along the way. Let Instacart shoppers help take shopping off your plate so you can get time and energy back for what really matters. Visit instacart.com or download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Additional terms apply. Instacart. Add life to cart.